I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For now I am seeking the approval of man, or am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The word of God. Let's pray. Father God, we are faithful followers of you. We are your children, and we need your truth. Please disrupt any non-truths about your word, about you, who you are, what we're to do, Lord, how we are to behave. In any way where there is no truth, bring truth. Convict us to know when it's from you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Kim. Here's your Bible. <laughs> Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Uh, I, th- I guess I'll start, before we get into the text, I'll start with a little, bit, a little personal news, because uh, I asked permission, so I thought I'd share it with you. Um, my son over there, Silas, just asked uh, 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 Ashley to marry him uh, yesterday. She's, she's undecided, so uh, don't, get, don't get too excited. <laughs> No, she said yes. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> so there's that, guys. I thought I'd uh, give you some, um, some news, some good news to celebrate. Um, as we, as uh, Kim already read, we, 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 went, we were covering verses 6 through 10 of chapter 1, and the title for this morning's message is No Other Gospel. Okay? No Other Gospel. So today, we are going to adopt a page out of the playbook of the great Nacho Libre and get right into the the nitty-gritty today. If this perhaps puzzles you, uh, I refer you to the the reading this morning because this is the approach that the Apostle Paul takes as he uh, attempts to communicate to the, the Christians in Galatia. Whereas in, in other letters, he um, would carve out a little time for, um, and, and some room for pleasantries, some, some room to celebrate a bit of what's going on within the congregation, what's going on in his, his, his heart. Uh, Paul, this time, has none of it. In fact, he gets, he's really wound up. And I don't know if you caught that in the reading, he's really wound up. He, and he, he begins by just getting into it and, and expressing his shock over the, uh, the acceleration of the apostasy that is taking place in this church. He says in verse 6, may I remind you, I'm astonished, I'm shocked, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are, and are turning to a different gospel. So he's freaking out. He can't believe it. It's, it's a shocking thing. 
And what was really sort of nefarious about what was going on in the Galatian church was that this um, entire matter was not a a clean cutting away from the church. These people were not leaving the church altogether, and there, was a, there wasn't a clean distinction there. In fact, what was going on was that they were, they were actually remaining in the realm of Christianity while making some tweaks to the gospel. And if that pops up a red flag to you, good, because anytime you make a tweak to the gospel, it should be a problem. Anytime you make a a tweak to the gospel, it should shock you, just like it shocked uh, Paul. For these Christians in Galatia, the glow of the gospel, the sheer beauty of the good news, had worn off to to such a degree, and rapidly, I might remind you, that they were now looking in additional places to source their security, their sanctification, and uh, ultimately, their salvation. Yahweh was, and this is what's strange about it, was still being praised on their lips, yet because of their open engagement with a different gospel, they were in reality turning their backs on the one who had called them to himself and to his unending grace to be experienced in their life. That's the intro into this section, and it's the reason for why uh, Paul is so shocked. So why and what was this different gospel? Uh, John touched on it a little bit last week, but we'll get into it a little bit more this week. And really, until June, and until we're actually finished with Galatians, we'll continue to examine why this group of Christians were departing to a different gospel. But again, why and what was this different gospel? Well, uh, N.T. Wright, he gives us a great explanation, and we have it up on the screen for you. But he says, he, he explains, seen from an outsider's perspective, Paul had done something totally unacceptable, both to the local Jewish community and to the wider Greco-Roman society, the social and civic fabric of the towns in southern Turkey. For the Jews, he had declared that anyone who belonged to Messiah Jesus was part of Abraham's family, an heir in waiting to the worldwide promises of Genesis, Isaiah, and the Psalms. For the local local pagan communities, he had, without a by-your-leave, established a network of communities whose members did not worship the local gods, offering as their excuse the strange claim that they were Abraham's family and thus entitled to the privilege granted to the Jewish communities. That was another reason why local Jewish communities would be horrified. If this new group were to claim the same exemption without, in fact, being ethnically Jewish, would not the pagan authorities clamp down and maybe attack them all? Paul was upsetting the delicate and at times fraught social balance. And that is what happened when the gospel was declared in this Greco-Roman world. It upended the, 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 the world. It, it upended culture. People were literally confused because you had this group of Gentile people claiming rights that were covenanted and promised to these Jewish people for thousands and thousands of years. So it was a strange time. This different gospel, really, when you get into it, was a socio-religious matter, and it was confusing a lot of people. 
You see, the scuttlebutt from Jerusalem was saying that Paul and his gospel was undermining the Torah, and he was causing Israel to sin. And of course, Rome loomed large always. The big, powerful Rome always loomed large and ready to squash any new thing that was happening that they did not approve of. And when these whispers made their way to the local Jewish Christians in Galatia, their thought they thought the best thing to do, and this is what's interesting, they, they thought the best thing to do was to persuade Gentile followers to um, get circumcised. So could you imagine that? I, I know John touched on that a little bit, but what a, what a conversation when your Jewish brothers come to church one day and they're saying, let's go to coffee after church. Maybe, maybe, maybe hit up JB's for, uh, you know, the, the $5.99 plate. Um, and then over this conversation, they say, you know, really, in order to integrate into the church and kind of dispel some of the concerns with people in the community, I think you should get circumcised. That would be quite a conversation. But that was what was going on. They, they figured, this is what their thoughts process was, they figured that this would keep the neighbors happy. This, this would smooth over some of the suspicion from the civic authorities and perhaps even please the people in Jerusalem. They thought just adopting this Ju- uh, um, the, Judaism uh, into, their, into, their, into their life and practice would kind of fix all of it. But here's the thing, and here's, here's why Paul is shocked. Here's why Paul is saying, I can't believe y'all are doing this. Because that is not the process that the gospel proclaims. That's not what Jesus says one must do in order to be welcomed into the family of God. I'm not going to get into every nut and bolt and nook and cranny of the gospel for you this morning, but basically what it proclaims is that we are all too sinful to contribute to our own salvation, and what we need is a a rescue that is completely outside of ourselves. In other words, there's no, no religious hoop we can jump through in order to be saved. We are totally without help. We need rescue from, from the outside. The gospel also declares that we are exclusively saved by belief in Jesus' work. The grace of Christ plus nothing else. The grace of Christ plus nothing else. And you see why? Paul's freaking out because they were talking about the grace of Christ plus something else, plus specifically circumcision and adopting Judaism back into their fold. Societal pressure, and this is something he touches on in, the, in verse 10, the fear of man, societal pressure, the fear of man had compelled Gentile Christians to embrace certain practices designated exclusively for Jewish, Jewish rites and rituals. This matter, um, John mentioned this last week as well, this matter was actually discussed in the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. There was confusion, confusion about what was happening when the Gentiles were coming to faith and, and, and what, they, what their response should be as they are grafted into the covenant family of God. And you know what the apostles never came up with? Was them adopting circumcision and Jewish rites and rituals. It's never mentioned in Acts chapter 15. And I, I think why it's really even relevant today is because still, 
still this, to this very day, Gentile Christians um, are, are insisted, are sometimes insisting on uh, embracing cer- certain aspects of Judaism. I don't know if you know any people like that, but they, and then there's, and, and, well, actually, I'll get, I'll get to that in a minute, but we have, we have, we have people insisting, uh, Jewish, Jewish believers insisting on one another adopting Jewish rites and rituals. And I find that interesting, especially when it's, it's actually considered and, and worked through in, in Acts chapter 15 with the, with the genesis of the church there. So the question is, I guess, is why is this still an issue in the church? Why is this kind of pressure still within the church? Well, my, here's my suspicion, guys. My suspicion, which has been observed in my own church experience, is because people who gather in religiously conservative crowds, uh, honor, shame, fear cultures, are bound to believe that they are saved by surrender to Jesus, plus the practices of right beliefs and behaviors. And I'm going to say that again because I think that's one of the dangers of conservatively religious people when they gather together. When you have an honor, shame, fear cultures, fear of man, fear of one another culture, um, I think you're bound to believe that you're saved by surrender to Jesus and plus uh, right practice and right beliefs in your, in your life. And what do I mean by that? Well, um, you are perhaps familiar with the phrase, um, the sort of phrase, don't dance, don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with any girls who do. Have you, have you, have you heard that one? Um, I heard an old-timer in southern Arizona say that one, and I thought, that's, that's gold. That's good. But don't, yeah, don't dance, don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with any girls who, who do. It's sort, of, it's sort of that rhetoric of there are a lot of things that you cannot do, and there's a community around you that is observing and making sure you, you don't. Um, I've, heard, I've heard Baptists say you, you can't dance. You, you, you can't dance. You're not, you, you can't dance. And I, and I think, well, that's partially true, because have you seen a bunch of white people dance? They can't dance. But, but, it, but it has nothing to do with, like, the law. Uh, it just, it's really a rhythm thing um, when, you, when, you get, when you get down to the nitty-gritty. Um, right? Am I right? Am I right? Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, but, but that's part of it. That's part of a, a fear-shame-honor culture that is, that it, when, a, when a community who is religious, religiously conservative, place um, the Jesus, a Jesus plus kind of ideal, and, and then they start um, rating people's holiness and sanctification based upon what they do and don't do. Um, on a personal level, I remember, and perhaps you remember, struggling with this sense of pride or shame of reading or not reading your Bible and saying your prayers daily. Right? I remember I was I was I gathered with a group of, uh, of of believers and that was just such an intense thing. We'd see each other in the morning. Did you read your Bible? Say your prayers. Oh, no, I got up late. Or or we straight up lie. Yeah, I've been I've been I was on my knees for an hour praying for you. Right. Um, 
I mean, I mean, where's Karen? Is Karen in here? I don't think she's in here, but she told me this story. She said one time she was pulled aside and because she, she was asked the question, did you read your Bible, say your prayers? She was, and she said, no, I got up late. And she was like pulled off her, her station, taken to an office so she could read her Bible and say her prayers. And I'm like, oh my gosh, right? But, but if you have been in any, um, you know, religiously conservative Christian circles, you know that to be true, that, that unspoken or spoken um, shame, honor, culture kind of being pervasive in the church, right? You understand what I'm talking about? And then, of course, you've also, and this is personal for me, but, but do you remember having the hubris of thinking that your theology is impeccable? Did you ever go through that season? Like, it's perfect. I got it. I got it. And all I have to do is just tell everybody, right? I just have to tell everybody. And then they'll, and then they'll get it. And then you realize they don't get it, and they're idiots, and I'm in, I have impeccable theology. Any of you? Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? Anybody? No? Okay. Well, yeah. We, we all go through these seasons. Or if we've ever been if we've ever stepped into a community that is, is religiously conservative, we understand what that pressure is like. Um, and these are just some examples of an overvalue of better beliefs and behaviors. It's an overvalue of better beliefs and behavior. When they creep dangerously close or ultimately become a new gospel. In other words, we believe the good news that has been proclaimed about Jesus, our sinfulness, and his power to save, but we also get preoccupied with what we do and don't do. And this is a big problem. And this is exactly what was happening with the Galatians. This this socio-religious pressure was taking place with people adopting a practice and rhetoric which says God's embrace of you is based on what you do or don't do. How well you do and don't do it for that matter. And that is what Paul is saying is a non-gospel. It's not gospel. And please hear me because I do have to be thorough because I know there's some people saying, well, some of the things you said, they're not necessarily bad. Well, please hear me. Being confident of your theology is important. But if it makes you feel better than someone else who has not done as rigorous a study in their own theology, if it makes you feel better than that person, then perhaps it's not God you love, it's your theology that you, that you love. And perhaps you're putting your trust in the wrong things. Perhaps it's not Jesus you're trusting, it's your intellect. And that's a dangerous thing. That's, a, that's an arrogant place. It's a non-gospel. It should be shocking. It is shocking. Additionally, if there is... In, in, in communities, if there's not r- room and freedom to question what we know about God, and, and, and there's not freedom to, to say things that are wrong, if people are terrified because, man, my, my theology better be dialed in at, at my community because someone's going to blast me if I'm not on target. If, that, if we don't have an open space to communicate in love, and have grace and, and mercy for one another, then we have to ask ourselves, am I actually veering towards another gospel? Um, it's good and necessary to read scripture, to pray, and follow the Spirit. I'm team pray, team read your Bible, team trust the Spirit. That's, I'm on that team. But if those practices and those paths 
give you a sense of self-righteousness, a better-than-others kind of vibe, your justification might, without really even knowing it, may actually have been ascribed to both you and Jesus. And does anybody want their salvation to be ascribed to you and Jesus? Yeah, I'm a terrible savior. And as John Calvin explained, when the glow of justification is ascribed to another and a snare is laid for the consciences of men, the Savior no longer occupies his place and the doctrine of the gospel is utterly ruined. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus alone. Jesus alone. And this is what Paul, this is why Paul is pulling a nacho libre. This is why he's getting into the nitty gritty because these Christians have lost their, their course. They, they're close to Christianity. They're saying the name of Jesus. But here's the thing. To, be, to even be close like that is to be galaxies away from the heart of God. Because God sent his son so that we might worship and see him alone. In fact, that's what, that's what Paul builds on in chapter 5. He says, to God alone be the glory, right? God alone be the, the glory. And so, man, isn't it interesting how man connected to God has always been in the process of muddling that perspective? Because we're dumb and selfish and all sorts of things. But that doesn't change the goodness of God. Now, I picked on conservative Christians in that kind of shame-honor culture, but what about the liberal church as well? Because I like to be fair about picking on people. So, you know, was, you know we got into that, and I, and I got to got, get some stuff off my chest, but what about, what, what about a liberal, the liberal Christian church as well? Because other churches of, of the liberal persuasion, they teach that it doesn't really matter what you believe, just as long as you're a loving and good person. And that sounds pretty good until you actually, you know, mine the depths of that and you investigate it a little bit. You see, this view teaches that all good people, regardless of their religion or lack of one, will find God. And this sounds extremely open-minded on the surface, but it's actually an intolerant view of grace. It's an intolerant view of grace. Yeah. It's intolerant in two ways. And I I refer you to Tim Keller because he succinctly talks about these two ways. He explains first, it teaches that good works are enough to get to God. If all good people can know God, then Jesus's death was not necessary. All it takes is virtue. The trouble is when this means bad people have no hope, contradicting the gospel, which invites both good and bad to God's feast. And he references Matthew. If you say people are saved by being good, then only the good can come into God's feast. The gospel offers some, uh, the offer, gospel offer becomes exclusive, not inclusive. And second, it encourages people to think that if they are tolerant and open, they're pleasing to God. They don't need grace. They get eternal life for themselves. And so glory forever goes to them for being good enough for heaven. The gospel, however, challenges people to see their radical sin, 
Without that sense of one's own evil, the knowledge of God's grace will not be transforming, and we will not understand how much God is glorified by the presence of anyone at all in heaven. We should be shocked. If we get to heaven, if it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, when we get to heaven, we should all be shocked. And I think we'll probably be shocked by who is in heaven and who is not in heaven. But I think when you think through it, the sad truth is that at the heart of humanity, the reality is that we want to be our own saviors. We want to dictate terms. Like, we're just autonomous people who don't like to be told what to do. And when you take the depraved humanity, such as ourselves, and you put us in a Western American culture, that creates uh, an extreme independence that, if not humbled and surrendered before a holy and righteous God, it can make us kind of crazy and in, in mad, mad. Because the sad truth at the heart of humanity is we want to be our own saviors. And this is, you guys, Galatians tells us that this is true about Christians as well. Not just, not just unbelievers, but for believers as well. It's a temptation. You see, we are a self-determined people. The real temptation is implementing our own subjective criteria for salvation, sanctification, and for the kingdom of heaven. We all want to have our own ideas around it. And perhaps you've had a conversation with yourself if you have ever struggled with the liberal side of things, because I've also struggled there as well, not just in the religious conservative side of things, but I've also struggled with the liberal side of perspective on life and, and holiness and practice and all that. But if you've, perhaps you're like me and you've had a question, you've had a conversation with yourself that goes something like this. It's not, it's not what I'm doing is not so bad, especially when you consider what everybody else is doing right? Like, comparatively, I'm, bas- I'm still a saint. <laughs> I'm basically, uh, sh- should be um, a monk or something, uh, when you compare it to uh, the, these other monsters out, out there. But it's, what's interesting is, isn't that, that social pressure working in the reverse? However you want to split it, whichever angle you want to look at it, if we are not exclusively fixed and focused on the grace of God that is poured out by the blood of Jesus Christ alone, then we are losing our ways. And we are either in danger or we are invested into a non-gospel. And if that's happening, we need to, we need to have some shock, some astonishment. There should be a sense of urgency, just like there was in the Apostle Paul in, these, in this chapter. And I love Paul's prescription for the serious danger that is looming for these people. He gives a prescription for it, an answer for it, in verses 8 and 9. You can read it with me. He says, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to one we preach to you, uh, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In other words, he can go to hell. 
And I know that sounds like a pretty extreme statement, but that is what Paul is saying. He's saying he needs to be pushed out of what, would, what we would be calling the family of God because it's a non-gospel. He says, even if an apostle or one possessing authority in your life, and I think, I think it's important to add, and even if this person of authority put, uh, has been helpful in the past, if they are currently confessing a new way of salvation, a new way of sanctification, a new way of declaring the kingdom of heaven and how it comes into the world, let that person be accursed. They, they, they shouldn't be allowed to declare that lie. Because it's not good news. It's, in fact, as we've kind of unraveled it, it's very unhelpful news because it keeps someone lost. Perhaps even completely condemned. I don't know all the details between, between God and man and their, the particularities in their hearts, so I won't go there. But the wisdom is to stay away from non, the, a non-gospel. Reject that in our life, in our practice. No matter what kind of social, religious pressure we are facing in our, our particular midst. And so we should, um, if anyone teaches a gospel, if you ever hear that from uh, any of us at Union, um, you know, it's probably coming from John. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, just, just joking. That's, that's my buddy. I can say that um, in case you're new here and you're like, that guy's a jerk. No. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, yes, and. Yeah. Um, if, you, if you ever hear someone at Union proclaim a different gospel, then like, Take us, uh, take us gently out of here and, and kick us out. Um, you know, no, don't lynch me or anything, but you know, get me out of here until there's real repentance, until rhetoric changes. But if, God, if there's a non-gospel issue being declared as a primary thing in this place, let's, let's give them the hook. Let's give, if that's me, give me the, the hook. Take another page out of Nacho Libre's playbook and rip your blouse and make a protest, right? There's, some people say that Nacho doesn't know a lot of stuff about the gospel, but he does. He does. In other words, if we're looking at, if you're summarizing uh, those, the section that we're studying, Paul says, guard this gospel. Guard it. And be, be shocked and appalled and get, you know, get revved up about when someone is trying to, um, even subtly, trying to feed in uh, something that sounds holy, righteous, and pure. Always measure it with Jesus. And what's interesting about this is Paul, he goes on to say that even if you have an out-of-body experience, um, he says, even if you meet with an angel and this gospel, this gospel new gospel is, is proclaimed to you, reject it. And of course, that addresses in apologetics, you know, some, some, some cults um, out there that are declaring a, a different version of Jesus. But I think it really speaks to the, the heart of humanity. Is that at the heart of humanity, we really want to be our own savior, and we really want to de- define terms and conditions for sal- salvation, sanctification, and how the kingdom of God unfolds in the world. 
So the question is, are we going to always be compelled by Christ, or are we going to try to continue to expand our minds and seek the truth from otherworldly places? And I only mention that because it's still a very prevalent pattern today. I remember when I was a, uh, a teenager in growing up in Cochise County, and this dude offered me peyote so I could open my mind. Um, that's happening still today with ayahuasca trips, mushroom, psilocybin mushroom uh, uh, adventures, and DMT trips. Because people are still, at the end of the day, looking for truth, and they're looking for it outside of themselves. And that's still happening. And so we have to be careful about that. And of course, it's so interesting that as we sit in a post-age of enlightenment, a a post-modern age, some call it a post-truth age, because now we say that the oracle of truth is all located in each one of you as individuals. So my truth is my truth, ultimately, and yours might be completely different, but it is also ultimate truth. And of course, that creates... A big problem, and it's why people are, you know, people are fighting all the time because I'm right and you're right, and not everybody can be right. <laughs> you like that one, huh? <laughs> like I said, humans, humans don't only desire to be savior, uh, humans desire to be saviors, um, self-determined demigods who deeply desire to determine their own terms and conditions. That's humanity. And it's what we ultimately need to be rescued from. Because we, we really don't know better. And that's what the gospel proclaims over and over and over again. And it's why we gather on a, as a collective on a regular basis. Because we need to be reminded of our rebellion, our sinful ways, every, every week. We need to know that we're big, big sinners, And we have an incredibly big Savior who, over us and living in and through us, gives us a better perspective. But we have to keep our eyes locked in, our hearts holding on to the true gospel. And as I said, I've touched on some things that can happen in churches and do happen in churches. And it's something that we have to guard one another from if we truly love each other. And that's what I love about Paul. Paul might say, the people might, might, might be saying, Paul, you're like getting bent out of shape and you're like freaking out a little bit. But guess what? He just loves them. And so if we really love each other, sometimes we'll get a little excited. We'll get a little emotional. We'll get a little bit in each other's grill. I think that's necessary if it, if it truly is iron sharpening iron. So anyway, that, that's a bit of a um, rant and a, you know, you know, what do you call that? Soapboxing. But it's also, it also fits in the, in the, the text, which is, which is why Paul ultimately says in this text, the gospel has to be the, not just the ground that we build our life on, but it needs to be the ground that, you know, centers us and grounds us. And it's why we have to keep revisiting it. I'm so glad that we're going through Galatians because Galatians is a book about how we day in, day out center around the gospel and let it settle and ground us so that we can live and be salt and light in the world in which God has called us to be a part of. We can, it must ground us. It must be the core of who we are and we can never move beyond it. 
I know some people want to love to hear the gospel and they say, okay, now um, I want to go into deeper waters. I want something, I want to go into theology that really challenges my intellect. Well, I'm telling you, if you study the gospel for the rest of your life, you'll never get to the bottom. Never. You'll just keep, keep, you'll continue to see how vast the ocean of God's grace truly is. And the, the perplexity and the puzzling nature of what happens when God becomes man and then dies on a cross to sanctify us. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And I love, I want to take a page out of Paul's playbook because this is what he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. He reminds them how the gospel came to them. He says, when I came to you, brothers, did not, uh, did not, uh, I, when, when, when I came to you, brothers, did not come uh, proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And I say, thank God for that. Like, you don't have to have lofty, lofty speech and um, wisdom. He says, for I declared to you, uh, I decided to, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I love what Paul says. He says, I came, and I wasn't a great orator. I, I, didn't, have, um, I didn't have any books to put on the, you know, the back table when I came to preach. I just had this simple message of Jesus Christ and him crucified for you. And, when it, and, and I didn't... He said it wasn't even articulate in, in like, beautiful wisdom. Um, he was probably stumbling and stammering a lot, a lot like I do. And I'm, like I said, I'm thankful for that. It tells me I can keep preaching. Because what matters most is the gospel being proclaimed. And that being proclaimed in spirit and in truth and the power of, the, power, uh, power of God. And, and guess what? That has nothing to do with me. And that's very, very good news. So... My friends, I guess in closing, we have billions and billions of things masquerading as gospel good news in our life. But the Bible, if we go back to the Bible, it proclaims only one answer, and his name is Jesus. Amen? Yeah? Are you on board with that? Okay. Questions? Questions as we close. Is salvation the sheer grace of God, or is it something else? And two, um, to whom or what are we really looking to for salvation and to make sense of the world in which we live? I think that second question is kind of where most of us find ourselves. Where are we, all, where are we turning and putting our eyes and locking our heart into to actually make sense of the world in which we live? But as Christians, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning and your work in our heart. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would take uh, the truth and the sermon and whatever is in it that is good for us, that you would um, drill it deep into our hearts. And whatever has not been helpful, that that would be easily forgotten, left by the wayside. Um, but God, we would all center around this beautiful 
good news of your arrival on earth and your salvation that you have provided for us in your perfect sacrifice. May we, may we know uh, it to a deeper extent today, and may we um, know you in the power of your resurrection um, more as we, as we leave this place. And God, we love you, and we thank you that um, you've called us into your family and you saved us with, with simple beauty and, and in, in this wonderful, glorious truth. And may we, may we have our eyes and our, 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 our hearts and our minds enraptured with it always. Um, we love you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.